Good evening, everybody. Glad to see it's not too crowded in here this evening. They must have known I was talking this evening. Anyway, welcome to uh, Tuesday teachings. These past few weeks, we have uh, been enjoying the teachings from uh, 1 Peter. We've been learning of a, a variety of qualities that uh, are sometimes very challenging for us. Uh, some have dealt with our relationship with our Lord, uh, the invitation to be intimate and uh, to call him Abba. We've been admonished to consider our relationships with our fair partners and for ladies, our husbands. We've even considered the, uh, the suffering, our suffering Christ. And tonight, it is with joy that um, I'm able to bring to you a, a short topic that I'm sharing with Tim uh, on what I have entitled Suffering for Right and Wrong. During the past few weeks, we have heard much of suffering for Christ. Suffering is no stranger to many of us, if not all of us at some time in our lives. However, to consider suffering for either right or wrong can present a choice and a consequence to, the, to us that can conflict with our fundamental desire to avoid suffering in our flesh altogether. The first bullet I have this evening is... Uh, 1 Peter 3.13, for who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Before we proceed, if we could just take a moment to thank the Lord for being here and, and prayer. Abba, this evening it is with great joy that we are assembled together in your name, Lord, to consider your word. We ask that your spirit would freely might be amongst us and teach us this evening, excite us with your word, give us understanding and uh, the humbleness to receive it and accept it to change us. We give you thanks in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So again, in 1 Peter 3.13, for who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? The word harm in 1 Peter 3.13 raises the consequence of potential injury or lack thereof to our person and points us to faithful to a faithful but sometimes difficult focus on our devotion to good in obedience with the word of God. The future tense in this verse indicates that it is likely a reference to judgment day. In 1 Peter 2.13, if we can just take one step back, reviewing this verse, 12 points to the fact that nothing escapes the watchful eye and attentive ear of our Lord, particularly those who seek his righteousness and will and the will of our lives, of the Lord in our lives. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13 continues the message of verse 12. Verse 14 further clarifies verse 13. 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. Verse 14 encourages us not to be intimidated by threats or consequences when we seek the will of the Lord for our lives, learning to submit to a fear of the Lord before men. This verse is similar to Jesus' statements in Matthew chapter 5, 10 to 13. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed in the verse 1 Peter 3.14 and Matthew 5, 10 to 12 are translated from strong Greek's lexicon summary from the word makarios to mean blessed or happy. This suggests that the blessing makarios is best considered in terms of eternal life with Christ. Clearly, we are to stand on the promises of our Lord rejoicing at the ultimate consequence and blessing from the obedience to his will. Now let's review verse 1 Peter 3.14 again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. It is generally held that verses 13 and 14 refer, refer to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 8.12-14. to 14. In Isaiah 8, 12 to 14, I read, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And in verse 13, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your reward. Similarly, it is generally held that the text in Isaiah 12 to 14 has 8, chapter 8, verses 12 to 14, has been restated by Peter to fit his writing themes, though we again do not know if the text was carefully altered or if it's cited from Peter's memory. In 1 Peter 2.8, just to take another step back, a stone stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. It seems that Isaiah's text was important for Peter, for we see in 1 Peter 2.8 that he, Peter, in using the imagery of a stumbling stone, wanted to associate his thoughts with those conveyed in Isaiah in verse 18, 14. And in Isaiah 8, 14, he will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those 
to both the house of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 7 and 8 are also important to understand this context. Tom Schreiner, a respected author of 1 and 2 Peter, explains that the southern kingdom of Judah was threatened by the northern kingdoms of Israel and Aram, approximately modern-day Syria. These two countries were threatened, were threatening to remove Ahaz, a king of Judah, and to install a certain Tabil as king in his stead. The threat filled Ahaz and Judah with terror, as depicted in Isaiah 7-2, which reads, and it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved by the wind. But Isaiah promises that the Lord would preserve Judah, that Israel and Aram would be vanquished by Syria, properly then known as Assyria and that the Lord would provide a sign to demonstrate the faithfulness of his word. Judah and Ahaz were to respond by trusting the Lord's promises. In Isaiah 8, 11 to 15, which we have largely covered already, the Lord commands his people not to fear the plot hatched by Israel and Aram. They should only fear Yahweh, the God of Israel, and put their trust in him alone. Those who trust in him will find him to be a sanctuary, but those who fail to trust will stumble, fall, and will be broken. We can see from this short synopsis of Isaiah that Peter appropriately applied the prophecy to his situation. Just as Judah had enemies in the day of Ahaz, so Peter's readers faced opponents in their day. Just as Judah was tempted to fear their foes, so Peter's readers were liable to fear what their persecutors might do to them. Hence the words of Isaiah still spoke in Peter's day as they probably do today. Believers are not to fear suffering that unbelievers might administer to them. They are to trust in the Lord, believing that he will vindicate his own. In the New Testament, the heart was thought of as the origin of human behavior. And in 1 Peter 3.15, we read, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone, or everyone, I should say, who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Therefore, verse 315 is not speaking of merely a private inner reality, but a reality that will be evident to others through actions, for example, suffering for one's faith. Believers are to be ready to give reason and defense for their hope. Thomas Schreiner also taught that the exhortations described in verse 15 are instructive, for Peter assumed that believers have solid intellectual grounds for believing the gospel. The truth of the gospel is a public truth and can be defended in the public arena. This does not mean, of course, that every Christian is to be high, a highly skilled apologist. For the faith, it does mean that every believer should grasp the essentials of the faith and should have the ability to explain to others 
why they think the Christian faith is true. Paul Archimer, another respected biblical teacher in one of 1 Peter, held that the command of verse 15, to be ready to account and defend your faith, would be counter to the kind of attitudes held by many historic and capitalistic groups in the Greco-Roman world at that time. Such a defense in their contemporary time would have been tantamount to betrayal of the community and their gods, small g. Artemis further asserted that our defense of the hope we enjoy is not to be avoided. This verse instructs us not to be revengeful or retaliatory, but to be prepared to suffer for our faith and not fear further persecution from the pagan world. We must be ready to live our lives openly in the midst of an unbelieving world and just as openly be prepared to explain the reason for our hope. Peter uses the term hope instead of faith, perhaps because unbelievers would see that the reason believers suffer persecution for their faith is because of their hope of eternal life with Christ. And we see this in uh, 1 Peter 1.3 and 1.13. In 1.3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in 1.13, we read, Therefore gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One Peter three sixteen, I read, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Thomas Schreiner, a notable New Testament biblical professor asserted that keeping a good conscience refers to a right relationship with God. The phrase in Christ indicates the good conduct is distinctively a Christian behavior. And returning to an earlier verse in 1 Peter 2.12, we read, Peter states that good behavior will lead some unbelievers to salvation, while in verse 316, Peter states that some unbelievers will be put to shame on the last day because they refuse to acknowledge the goodness of the lives of the believer. In modern society, shame most often refers to the emotion that is akin to embarrassment or guilt. But the Christian testimony is not intended to embarrass those to whom it is offered. J. Ramsey Michaels, a theologian, theologian, sorry, and scholar taught in the Old Testament and Jewish writings, shame was associated with social status, often in reference to utter defeat and disgrace in battle. Shame meant to be overthrown and left at the mercy of your enemies. Scripture often promises that those who are faithful to God will not in the end be ashamed, but their opponents will be. This does not, therefore, refer to emotion, but to standing. 
Now let's really review verse 1 Peter 3:17 for there are two possible meanings for this verse and I will read for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing God good than for doing evil. In the first it is that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. But we see in inserting or looking at 1 Peter 2 19 to 20 and I will read for this is commendable if because of conscience towards God one endures grief suffering wrongfully and in verse 20 for what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently this is commendable before God The second is that it is better to suffer now for doing good than to suffer on the day of judgment for doing evil. And moving forward just to one verse, just looking at 1 Peter 4.19, the Bible tells us, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. The point is that God wills suffering, but that God's will doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong, even if when, when this results in suffering. This is the word of the Lord, and I hope that you have enjoyed and this presentation. Thank you.